seriously popular. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In today's episode... Is the number nine shirt too heavy for Kai Havertz? Did Newcastle take it too far after the Derby win? And is Mo Salah really Liverpool's greatest? I'm Ian Ladyman. I'm Chris Sutton. And it's all kicking off. Chris, the Arsenal nightmare goes on. Oh, yes, it does. I've, I've, I've got to say, you were at the game, Ian, right? Uh, but, but what you know, watching the game. It's one, of, it's one of those at the end of the game where I think Mikel Arteta comes in and thinks, how have we not won that? We missed chance after chance uh, after chance. Didn't deserve to go out. But, but you know, what it has done now, it has brought scrutiny uh, on Mikel Arteta and Arsenal and everybody's thinking, is this going to be an Arsenal team which, uh, which cannot challenge now for a Premier League title? Why? Because... They don't have a, a, a recognisable number nine. Um, I've got to say on the, uh, you know, I've got an opinion on, on Kai Havertz. I don't know whether you agree with it or not. If I'm Eddie and Ketia, I'm wondering how am I benched and I probably don't have a future at Arsenal if I aren't starting as a central striker. But I don't think that, um, I don't think that Mikel Arteta um Picking Kai Havertz as a central striker or a false nine, or, or however you know, however you want to call it, he was he was Arsenal centre forward yesterday. I don't think that he is he is doing any good for the Arsenal team, and I don't think it's doing any good for uh, for Kai Havertz. I think psychologically, when he knows he is playing as a central striker. He looks like he is he is shackled. He looks like the the weight of the shirt is too great for him. He looks like he dithers and delays, just as he did uh, on a couple of occasions in the first half. He doesn't think clearly. I don't. I, if it, it, I look back at the goals he scored this season, and he scored he scored the charity penalty uh, away at Bournemouth. The pity he, penalty. He can't, he, the pity penalty, charity penalty, whatever you want to call it. He scored the the late winner at Brentford, where he came off the bench to score a winner. So no real sort of pressure in that situation. And then the other goals he scored, and you know, stand to be sort of corrected. Um, but he scored goals while he's playing uh, in a team where Jesus, Gabriel Jesus has started as a centre forward, where he doesn't have that pressure. I think it affects him. When he when he knows he's number nine, and you know, I've been there myself, and you know, we've talked about. Uh, you know, spell in my career where where I struggled uh, at, at, at Chelsea, but he 
I, I think I think going to the game, getting changed, uh, and and thinking about playing in that position, I think it really affects him. Uh, we, we we saw at the start of his career when he played at Leverkusen, he always was so effective as a number ten. That's his position at Chelsea. It was. Uh, you know, he was thrown in at centre forward and it was unfortunate for him. Having said that, he scored the winner in the Champions League final. Kai Havertz is a good footballer, but I think Mikel Arteta um, playing him uh, as, uh, as a number nine, it just absolutely kills him, destroys him psychologically. He has to play him as an eight. And we've seen this season um, that when he does play as an eight, he seems to play freer. Uh, he seems to enjoy it more. So I think that that was a huge mistake from Mikel Arteta and something which he really needs to think about. I think he played him He played him as number nine because he's desperate. That's why. We'll get on to Nketiah in a but, minute. But, Eddie, but, 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 Nketiah, but, but so he's desperate, right? So I get, I get that, OK? But what does it say? What message does that send to Eddie Nketiah? If he's desperate, he plays Havertz as a nine... What is Eddie and Ketia thinking? If I'm Eddie and Ketia, I'm thinking I cannot stay at Arsenal any longer. If it's desperate and you play a guy who's who, who's affected, a guy who's playing with shackles on, come on, he's got no future at Arsenal. And Ketia came on in the 81st minute, 81st minute, which I think I think which I think um, sums sums it up pretty well. I think I think that in itself tells Eddie and Ketia what his manager thinks of him. And Ketia scored a hat trick earlier on this season, and you and I spoke on this podcast the day after and we both agreed that we that we both thought that he nevertheless wasn't quite the level needed by Arsenal and subsequently I think that has been borne out by Mikel Arteta's selection policy he never plays him he never picks him and even when he desperately needs a goal like he did yesterday he doesn't chuck him on until nine minutes from time now it's really interesting a couple of things I want to pick up on the first is that you say that Arteta must have come in afterwards and thought, how have we not won that game? Well, I'll tell you what, I was at the game and I sit here now and look back and can't remember, cannot remember an Alison Becker save of note. I can remember Arsenal faffing about in the penalty area. I can, I can remember Kai Havertz um, shooting and heading so weakly, so weakly and feebly, that I wondered at one point whether maybe he'd forgotten to have his breakfast. Um, I can remember. I can remember them hitting the crossbar. Um, I can remember balls flying across goal, but I can't the big remember. Big chances, how, but, So, so you yeah, know, it shows but, how, how but, bad the, but, the finishing was. Not, that they didn't make him work. Yeah, Chris, it's not bad luck. That's not bad luck, mate. No, so when, no, no so, I agree. So, so, so when Arteta comes in afterwards and says. Um, I think we all know that merit-wise, quote was something along the lines of, we can all we all know merit-wise who deserved to win that game. Yeah, I tell you, who deserved to win that game, Liverpool, um, and they, because Liverpool played with attitude, they played with a presence. They've got they've well, got, Arsenal hang, played hang with on. attitude. Chris, they've got they've, Liverpool have got two centre halves, two centre halves missing, two two left backs missing. Three midfield players missing, Mo Salah missing. Yeah, they weren't the best team yesterday in terms of territory and possession and shots, but in terms of managing a game and then doing what they needed to do at the right moment, they were the better team. I want to mention one name, man of the match, Trent Alexander-Arnold. What a performance yesterday. Captain in the absence of Virgil van Dijk, who was ill. That was a performance 
of a leader. He looked like a general on that field yesterday. Trent Alexander-Arnold looks to me almost as though he's physically grown. He hasn't, but he looks like he's physically grown in the last six months because he's playing with such confidence and authority. He's carrying himself in a different way. He was a colossus yesterday. Absolutely superb. The range of the range of passing, the work rate, the leadership, that's attitude, Chris. That's attitude. By heck, Arsenal could do with a little bit of that. Now, as we were leaving the press box yesterday, a few angry Arsenal fans, not, not angry in terms of thinking that Mikel Arteta is the wrong man or anything like that, but frustrated Arsenal fans were kind of shouting over to the journalists in the press box, we must sign someone um, and I think everybody accepts it. it's probably a number nine that they would like to sign um, a player that they're hugely fond of and we talked about last week is Brentford's Ivan Tony. Um, Sammy Mottbell told us last week he thought Tony was going to be beyond Arsenal's reach in January too expensive etc Tony um, just coming to the end of a, an eight month betting ban um, at Brentford has, um, has spoken overnight spoken to Sky spoken to Daily Mirror given a quite a big interview in which he's essentially said that he's staying. Um, paraphrasing here, he says, "I Tony has said, I have a lot to repay at Brentford and I will be playing a big part in the fight for survival. So that looks as though that one is done and dusted for Arsenal, at least until the summer. Essentially, that was what Sammy Mottbell, our chief football reporter, told us a week ago. Sammy joins us now. Um Mate, what are Arsenal going to do? It, it looked quite bleak for them a week ago. It's now got worse. Uh, now got worse. They've lost another couple. Of, they've lost another game. They've lost Gabriel Jesus, um, the only centre forward that that um, Mikel Arteta does appear to rely on. What are they going to do in January, if anything? It's it's going to be tough for them. In as as you said, you know, Gabriel Jesus has picked up a. Uh, a knee injury. That they're hope they're hopeful that it isn't too bad. They go to Dubai this week for some for some R and R after um because uh, obviously they've got this midwinter break. They haven't got a game this weekend, so he'll be going on that. And they'll be hoping that he can he can recover from this knee problem uh, before their next game on January the twentieth against Crystal Palace. But it's it's a problem and it's a long term problem for them and it's one they're going to have to solve. Um, as I said last week, I think it's difficult to solve that problem this month because of their FFP limits, etc. They, they spent a lot in the summer, um, so and and it's a signing that they've got to get right. It's not one that oh, let's get you know that let's just get someone in through the door. They need a recognised and they oh, they need a number one. They're their first choice number nine. I you know I'm not sure that is going to be obtainable this month so I think for the short term for the time being until the rest of the season it is likely that it's just going they're just going to have to make do with what they've got but moving on quickly um Sammy let's whiz through a couple of other topics um across the seven sisters road at Tottenham um Anz Postacoglu um seems wound up about this Eric Dyer to buy oh he's situation. not wound up Ian Chris Chris this is Sammy's Dear section me. not yours <laughs> I don't want to press the mute button, Chris, but this is this is Sammy's section, <laughs> not yours. Um, this is Sammy's the expert here. Yeah, what's what's Postecoglou wound up about with Eric Dyer, Sammy? What's what's at play there? I, I think what you're alluding to is the clip where he, he he lost it a little bit, didn't he, with a reporter? What I would say about that clip is, if someone was sort of insinuating he was being disingenuous, disingenuous with regards to a, an injury. 
to die. I, I think it's understandable that he would that he would lose it a little bit. And but just generally speaking, on die, he's been such a, a central figure in that dressing room, along with the likes of Harry Kane, Jung and Son for for you know the better the best part of a decade really. So I think the, st- the stance that Ange has taken with regards to not playing him and and being open to selling him hasn't been an easy one, but he's he's taken it because of the philosophy and, and the way that he wants to play, you know, the, the high line, the recovery pace, etc. Unfortunately, you know, Eric Dyer is a is a super footballer, but what he doesn't possess is, is pace, which then doesn't, you know, in turn doesn't allow Tottenham to play with that high line that, that Ange Postacogli wants to play with. So is, is that Bayern Munich thing a goer with Dyer? Yeah, yeah, he's on he, he he's on their list. He's he's had permission to talk to them, okay. and um, uh, we see also that Tottenham are, um, are taking Timo Werner on loan from Leipzig, which is interesting. A player who I don't know doesn't seem to have kind of had a decent game of football since before he joined Chelsea two or three years ago. So that that feels a little bit that feels a little bit Spursy that one. Now, um, what I suppose that the biggest uh, transfer story of the weekend is one that we touched on. A week or so ago, we we sat here and talked about Jordan Henderson, the possibility of Jordan coming back to the Premier League. It's now out there. It's been written um, uh, by our own Matt Hughes and others um, over the weekend that Jordan is uh, 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 disappointed, uh, unhappy, unsettled uh, uh, in Saudi Arabia, not enjoying himself, wants to come back. How That's a heck of a U-turn, given that he said that he wanted to go there to grow the game. He can't have grown it that much in three months. Quite. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And as you say, this is a, this is a, this is a move that, is, that we, we purported uh, on the pod last week. And, you know, rumours have been swirling around for a, a couple of months now that uh, Jordan Henderson hasn't been happy. Um, if he wants to come back to, to the Premier League and come back to England... Uh, the biggest stumbling block towards that will be his reported wages, which differ between five hundred and seven hundred thousand pounds a week. There is absolutely no way he gets anywhere near that. That here, you know, he's, he's thirty three years years old, going on thirty four. He will absolutely have to take a pay cut and a, a massive one at that. Would anyone in the top six take him? I'm not sure. I think the jury's out on that, and then. The lower down you go, the division invariably the the less money and the less budget there is for wages. So uh, the biggest factor here is is Henderson's whether Henderson is open to to taking a and it would be a, a, a substantial pay cut from what he's on at the moment. Um, if he's willing to do that, um, then there may be some takers for him towards the lo- the lower end of the Premier League. But I, I, I just can't see a, a top six club um, taking Jordan Henderson at the moment. Sammy, thanks for joining us, mate. Uh, thanks for bringing us that level of detail information as always. Um, Sammy will be back um, possibly next week and certainly a couple of times before the end of the window um, to bring us bang up to date with all that's happening around the Premier League and beyond in terms of transfers. Thank you, mate. Hold that thought. We'll be back right after this. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So you, you, you spoke about Ange Postecoglou getting riled, getting angry. What's a question which you've sort of put to a manager where they've, you know, where it's got the blood up? Have, have you ever, oh, have you ever got once, a manager once, really uh, angry? Yeah. <laughs> I once said to Fergie, I once asked Alex Ferguson, Fergie had been there. Uh, Manchester United has lost a European Cup title to a Champions League title by Munich. And afterwards, on the TV interview, um, so Alex had essentially made some. He was he was obviously upset. He was you know pissed off at losing. I think he made some point about typical Germans or or, or German a- acting or something. Anyway, that was something kind of vaguely, vaguely the type of stuff that managers say all the time when they're upset after a game. And I went to his Friday press conference a couple of days later and um, asked him whether he thought his comments had been um, <clears throat> tantamount to kind of jingoistic, offensive <laughs> really nonsense and uh, he didn't take kind he didn't take kindness to that. I think that was, I think I think I think I think I think I asked him if he regretted it. And I think I asked him if maybe it maybe it'd been a slur on Germany that he regretted. And um t- t- I think the only person who regretted that was me because I think that I think that question I think that question actually preceded one of my three bands at Manchester United. I think I was out I think I was out the door about a week later. So there you go. There you go. Didn't go down didn't, didn't go down too well. I didn't I didn't get an answer by the way. Um right, so um um so Sammy Mockbo was talking talked to about we ended that section talking about Newcastle, um, Newcastle Sunderland. That was the game that everybody was looking forward to at the weekend in the FA Cup. Uh, Saturday lunchtime um, at the Stadium of Light. First time the teams had played each other for eight years. Newcastle hadn't beaten Sunderland for thirteen years. Three nil to Sunderland. Three nil to Newcastle. Three nil to Newcastle. That was a bit of a three nil hammering, wasn't it? Sunderland. Sunderland just did not turn up for that game. What a disappointment yeah. from their point of view. I, I I thought it may go that way in my uh, FA Cup predictions. I had Newcastle to win three nil. Uh, I like to tell you, and I do well um, with my predictions. Um, the atmosphere before the game, I've got to say, and all the build up, I thoroughly enjoyed. And you know, it was fever pitch, wasn't it, until kick off, and then the game kicked off, and it wasn't a contest. Newcastle, as you've you've mentioned, were were so superior. Sunderland didn't lay a glove on them. Sunderland were fearful; they couldn't get up the pitch. Sort of, you, you know, they, I didn't know what their what their identity uh, was, and 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 they were they were feeble. And that isn't all on the manager. I know, sort of, we have a tongue in cheek stuff about Michael Beale. He's got a job on his hands to to try and get them in the playoffs. A uh, difficult job. 
I think we both agree Tony Mowbray was was harshly sacked, but it just showed the gulf between the two clubs at this moment in time. Huge win for Eddie Howe. I don't care what anybody says. Had he lost that game, then there would have been pressure uh, which started to mount on him uh, because it was a championship team, uh, Sunderland, and, uh, and, and they haven't been on a good run. And eventually the expectation will grow. But I was pleased for Eddie Howe. I think he needed it, uh, but it, it, it wasn't a contest. Yeah, I think I think Sunderland bottled it a little bit. Um, Chris Waddle on commentary on ITV summed it up well at half time, and he, he suggested that Sunderland had frozen, and I think they did. They never laid a glove on him. There's there's no there was no VAR, um, and I'm only saying that because they probably could have got away with a little bit more of a physical approach, given that there was no VAR to pull them back every four seconds for every tackle. They didn't tackle. They didn't seem to run hard enough. Didn't seem to run fast enough. It was um, from their point of view, it was a game. It was a game that Newcastle controlled, and fair play to Newcastle for that. They approached it well. Eddie picked a strong team, and they played like a Premier League team. Perfect performance from them. But they were they were allowed to play. Now I just want to touch on a couple of things. There's been a, obviously there was plenty of back and forth before that game, and there's been a, between the clubs, great rivals, 13 miles apart in the northeast. Um, 13 miles apart, but hundreds of miles apart on the pitch, it seems. Um, but a couple of things went on in ahead of that game, and there's been a bit of back and forth after that game. What really fascinated me, and this is a story that's on the back page of the Daily Mail print edition today and across our digital platforms. Mike Keegan's written about it. So essentially, the Newcastle United match report on their website um, is a, I think it's a, I think it's a nine-paragraph match report, but the, if, if you're very, very smart, and you're aware of how these things work. And if you have a look at that match report and just take the first letter of every paragraph. So the first letter of every word of every paragraph, and you can work out a, you can work out a, pat, a pattern. The first three paragraphs, for example, begin with the letters S, M, B, which any Newcastle fan will tell you is a very, very clear and intentional, um, intentional point towards sad Mackham bastards if we can say that. The next three paragraphs begin with U, the letters U, T, M, which I think is up the mags. And the final one begins with four paragraphs, H, W, T, L, away the lads. Now, I got a little bit invested in this story yesterday, thinking it was maybe a little bit over the top, given it was on the official club website. Turns out, though, that Sunderland started it. Sunderland were at the Sunderland were at it in the preview. Um, I don't want to go into any more detail about it. It's on the back page of the paper today. It's on Mail Online. It's not difficult to find. I think it's a terrific little story. Any th- you ever known anything like that before, Chris? Um, I don't. I mean, this is brilliant, isn't it? I, I quite, you know, I really like Petty, but it's. I, I think it's. I think it's great. I, you know, I do. There's, there, you know. It's, there's a line, isn't it? They haven't crossed the line. It's all a bit of good fun, and and that's that's what it is. Nice rivalry, ferocious rivalry at times. At times, but nice for uh, for both clubs to see the the sort of funny side. I, I quite like it. What did surprise me a little bit from reading um, all the coverage of that game was that apparently Michael Oliver, the Premier League referee, was in the away end. Newcastle fan was in the away end. I think that's I think that's extraordinary. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you, and, and people will say, "Well, Michael Oliver, 
you know, is entitled to support the team, which he's always supported. Uh, they are his club. I just think that drawing is drawing attention to himself, needless attention. There's enough pressure on referees, and uh, by all accounts, he can't he can't uh, referee a game with Newcastle involved. But there could become a situation at the end of the season where Newcastle are vying for a a Champions League spot, a Europa League place or whatever, and he referees another game and somebody says that he awards a a particular decision because he's a Newcastle fan. So why put yourself in that position? I think, you know, that was a bit naive from him, really. I want to say a couple of things here. I think Michael Oliver is one of our better referees, by the way. Yeah, he is. I think he's, I think he's, I think he's good at what he does. I like the way he does it. Um, and just to explain the, the, the details and the background, at the start of every Premier League season, all the referees and assistant referees, etc., have to declare to the PGMOL their allegiance, so anyone they support, and also anyone their immediate family supports, and therefore um, those referees are, there, are then not allowed to work on matches involving those teams or indeed teams who are considered to be direct rivals. So, for example, if you, if you declare that you support Manchester City, you'll never referee a City game and you'll never referee a Man United game either. That's the way it works. So referees are allowed to support teams. Of course they are. Michael Oliver's quite within his right to support Newcastle. No slur on his integrity, no slur on his professionalism, but why on earth would you do it? Michael... Next time, sit on the sofa, mate. Put your Newcastle shirt on and your Newcastle slippers and sit on the sofa and watch the game. Um, now, answer me, answer me, I'm, going to, I'm going to ask you a question, which I don't expect you to know the answer to, but there's nothing new in that. Um, <laughs> That's usual, when, then. When Manchester United played Liverpool at Anfield earlier this season, they wore the white third strip instead of the green second strip. Why do you think that was? This is about uh, uh, about colour blindness, isn't it? And and people uh, watching games. And, and I think that was a game at the weekend. I mean, I don't suffer from uh, from being colour blind, but I think it was a game at the weekend where there was a lot of unhappiness because there was a, a, a clash. But what but what I, what I would say is when the game kicked off, uh, and I was watching the game with my son. You're talking I'd, about the Sunderland and Newcastle game. Yeah, Sunderland and Newcastle. When, when the game kicked off, I said I wouldn't have liked that when I when when I played, and I can't I can't I, th- I think there were instances where because a lot of football uh, is about peripheral vision, where that can become confusing because you know both got I mean they're different colours in that they're red and black, but they both have white stripes, so it 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 can become slightly confusing as a player. Set you're entitled to say you know I often look confused as a player, but I think that the general the general point stands, and I didn't I didn't like it, Ian. I, I, and I didn't like it, at, uh, you know, at the weekend. I think it can be. I'm, I may be miles off with this, but that's that's what I thought. And then I can't imagine what that would be like uh, because I'm not colour blind. But I know there was a lot of unhappiness. But surely, you know, you mentioned the uh, the the uh, there was at Liverpool Manchester United game. Surely, sport should be for all, and and you know, both clubs should have come to an agreement where people who are colorblind can you know they 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 change one of the clubs changes kit so 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 it's you know, everybody can watch it so just it. just let me explain a, a, a little bit let me explain a little bit so one in 12 men 
um, in in the UK are, are colour blind. One in one in one in uh, every two hundred women, and the, 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 apparently uh, Henry, our producer, is colour blind, and the the um, uh, he's also tone deaf. Um, the um, the the, one, the, the, the the two things that tend to to be at play with colour blindness tend to be uh, colours such as red um, and uh, uh, green, uh, red and black, and also stripes. That's what causes can cause a problem. Um, the Premier League actually have a um, are, are absolutely across this. So there's a nine page Premier League document that that has existed since 2021, outlining exactly what clubs should and shouldn't do when they're choosing what strips they're going to wear at games. There's even an online tool that clubs can use to indicate whether the the strip that they are planning to wear will present a problem with that of their opponents. So it's all out there. But despite that, and I know this wasn't a Premier League game at, New, at Sunderland, it was an FA Cup game, so it comes under FA jurisdiction, not the Premier League. But you would have thought that ahead of this game, the two clubs would have been across it. But apparently there were problems, and our reporter, Alex Biddle, spoke to a few fans and indeed one radio commentator outside the Stadium of Light on Saturday about the issue. As the weird time derby played out, fans took to Twitter to vent their frustrations at the clash of the kits. So I thought I'd head outside after the game to ask the fans how they got on inside the stadium. I thought it was a bit of a joke because like, you couldn't hardly decipher between the red and white and black and white. I thought they should have been in their away kit. I found it fine. I didn't see any colour clashes at all. Did it take away from the experience today? No, it was just a bit awkward, that's all. And it wasn't just the fans affected by the clash of the kits. Well, I've just bumped into commentator Jim Proudfoot, working for TalkSport today. Of all the people, you can tell me, how did you find it with the two home strips today? I found it very difficult indeed. Um, I think that the, there's no need to have for a high-profile game as this. I understand why Newcastle want to play in black and white, but there's no need to have the kits as similar as they are. Just have them... So it's a lot easier to differentiate. I've found it very, very difficult telling the, the black and white and the red and white stripes apart. I'm sure people did watch it on the telly as well. Uh, it just seems needless. You've got to think about people that are colourblind, that are watching the game here, watching the game at home, and just make it, make it easy for people. You know, you've got to be, be inclusive. Colour blindness is something that doesn't get talked about an awful lot. And it's something that is really important, obviously, if you suffer from it. It's really important that you can differentiate in the same way that, that uh, people with, with uh, you know, full sight can. Inter- interesting, Chris, that you, uh, that you say that you had a bit of a problem at the start of the game on the television. You're not colourblind. But also interesting that you say that as a player... Um, in your peripheral vision, you just see stripes and you don't necessarily see red and white stripes or black and white stripes. That, to me, is well, really you know, interesting, that, something that I would never have thought of. That's, uh, sorry. Uh, that's my experience of it. And other, other players may, you know, say I'm, I'm talking utter rubbish, but I, I, I didn't like it. And, I, you know, th- this whole thing and the way it's panned out and, we're, you know, we're into Monday now, but the amount of people who have... Who have talked about this and it's a significant number says that it it is a problem what's amazing is uh you know you talk about that you know the premier league having a procedure and protocol uh can't the premier league talk to the fa why do the fa not know about this why you, you know that's in this day and age it's sort of 
there are worse things which have happened, but it's slightly unforgivable that uh, that both teams are playing in stripes. You know, it's 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 easy to rem. This was easy to remedy, wasn't it? It's no big deal for you know for God's sake. I mean, just communicate and uh, you know make Newcastle play in a in a in a different kit. It's not difficult. I suppose it's quite strange that we're talking about this today, really, because often clubs get criticised for wearing their away kits too readily. They usually go to um, opposing teams' grounds where there is no colour clash and change into the away strip simply because they want to market it and sell it and make money. On this occasion, both teams, Newcastle and Sunderland, have chosen to wear their iconic home strips um, or their first strips. They feel there's no colour clash They've gone and played the game only to find out later that it has caused a bit of a problem. Anyway, interesting subject, something that I didn't know about and probably something that we'll all learn from um, moving forward. Now, we do have to talk for a little while about Joey Barton. Barton has been spraying bullets all over the internet recently, largely to complain about what he thinks is a substandard level of punditry by female analysts and commentators on the television. The likes of Gary Neville have also been caught in the crossfire. Now, Barton has gone a step further in the last week by describing uh, Eniola Aluko and Lucy Ward as the Fred and Rose West of commentary, the insinuation being that Aluko and Ward are murdering the art of punditry. ITV have taken issue publicly with Barton, and so has our associate editor, Stephen Wright, um, who has covered crime for the Mail for more than 30 years and who covered the seven-week trial of serial killer Rose West in 1995. Stephen joins us now. Hi, Stephen. Um, in, in your article, incredibly powerful article in the Mail on Sunday and across our digital platforms yesterday, you describe Barton's comments as an obscene new low for a deluded sexist thug. Um, could you... Just start a little bit by explaining to me and Chris why this whole episode has offended you so much. It's offended me because I sat through the trial of Rosemary West, which, as I wrote uh, in the Mail on Sunday on our digital platforms, was uh, just simply horrific. I've been covering crime for 30 years, as you said, and never in my career have I heard such harrowing evidence, both in the UK and abroad. I cover crime abroad for the, for the Mail as well. And it just simply disgusted me. It simply disgusted me. I was very wary, as I wrote, about giving oxygen to his warped, wicked views, which I fear will incite hatred towards um, women's football by some. I was wary about giving oxygen to it, but I just felt in the end it was so foul what he was alleging that I had to, to make a stand and give my view and remind people who weren't at the trial who may have been young or not even born uh, about just how horrific the crimes of Rosemary and Fred West were and as I pointed out uh, Barton was 11 years old when these crimes uh, came to light almost 30 years uh, to the day. Joey himself will, will no doubt uh, see what he said as just another off-the-cuff jibe on social media. But um, one of the points that you make in your in your piece is that it's, it won't seem that way to the families of, of victims, will it, of, of Rose and Fred West? No, not at all. I don't, you know, I, I, I doubt if, he had, if he's someone who has much empathy for, for the likes of the West victims. I sat down 
with the parents of a woman called Linda Goff, age 16, disappeared in the early 70s. They thought she was having um, a uh, teenage rebellion. Sadly, she ended up at the West House and she ended up in the cellar. And evidently, from we'll going to the detail of the, uh, what happened to her, but I mean, she she was evidently tortured before she was raped. Um, before she was taught, raped, probably, most probably, uh, and then murdered. And those that poor couple, Mister and Missus Goff, twenty years later in nineteen ninety four, got get the knock on the door from from the police um, to say, "We believe your daughter's in the cellar at Cromwell Street." And it was a very tearful. Uh, interview I did with Mr. and Mrs. Goff, um, because they just thought they were hope, still clinging to the hope that Linda would turn up one day. And um, what made it even more harrowing was the fact that they were tipped off that Linda was at Cromwell Street, and uh, Rosemary West cynically came to the door wearing Linda's slippers and said she'd left the Western Supermare weeks earlier. And that was it. And that was it until that awful moment when the police knock on the door. And um, that was compounded by the details of what happened to Linda and the other victims, which came out at the trial. Um, so I say, I mean, as I said in, the, in, the, in, the, in my piece, you know, the journalists were offered counselling because it was so horrific. And, you know, you've been in Fleet Street a long time, Ian, like me. Fleet Street was very different in the 90s to what it was today. But I think it's a sign of how bad it was that even then people recognised that this is very different. This is without precedent. And journalists and I think probably police officers as well are still affected by it. I think it's so hurtful and hateful, frankly, of Barton to say this is not an off-the-cuff remark. If it was an off-the-cuff remark, why is he doubled down and sent menacing messages to people like Gary Neville? It, 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 it's inhuman. Another thing that, that Joey Barton is uh, is using in his defence or as a justification for um, the approach that he's pursuing that is that this is this is free speech and if he's allowed if if he feels that um, female commentators on television are no good then he's perfectly entitled to say so. Well, I agree that I agree uh, with with the concept of freedom of speech. I'm a journalist. I do believe in it, but there is a line which you must not cross, and um, I think he's crossed that line by several country miles in in this this attack. If he wants to uh, wants to or is capable of making an intellectual argument, uh, well, do it, do it, but don't compare uh, this these uh, ITV commentators. Um, one of whom I listen to quite a lot, Lucy Ward uh, on, on uh, TNT, formerly BT Sport, and she's a very articulate and incisive commentator. Don't don't uh, compare these pundits to serial killers. I mean, it, it is the most absurd, unnecessary uh, comparison you can make. So, I mean, he has cheapened the whole argument and uh, made it worse by doubling down, trying to defend it. It's indefensible what he has done. Totally coincidentally, you're also a, a staunch Manchester City fan, Stephen. Again, I've known that for 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 quite a long quite a long time. Um, how does this make you feel, given that given that Joey is linked quite indelibly to to um, a certain period of your football club's history? I'm ashamed that you played for the club. I'm ashamed, and I think maybe the club, if it hasn't done so already, might wish to come out uh, in support of the ITV commentators, not to give oxygen 
further option to what he said, but just to stand up for decency, the club is very proud of its women's team. Uh, and um, it's, you know, it's the new Manchester City. And, the, you know, I've been to see uh, the City women's team. My wife, who doesn't like football, uh, likes the women's football team. Um, you don't get the play acting, do you? You don't get the feigning of injuries. You don't get the time wasting, which you get in men's football. And nor do you get quite a lot of the foul language. And um, as I was saying to you off air, I mean, I, I go quite regularly to see Wimbledon um, Football Club. Um, best football I've seen was when City women played Chelsea women in the, in the Continental Cup final a couple of years ago. So on many levels, as a City fan, I'm deeply offended by what Barton has said, um, both to the ITV pundits and the slur on the women's game more generally. Stephen, you've put this um, far more articulately, articulately than I, I ever could. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your thanks for your insight and thanks for the le- deep level of um, of concern that you've expressed over this. And um, I have a have a. a a desperately sad feeling that I don't think this is the last time we'll be talking about this matter. That's uh, Stephen Wright, the Mail's uh, associate editor who uh, has covered crime um, for the Mail and the Mail on Sunday for more than 30 years. Chris, I, 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 don't, um, I don't know where we go with this, really. Um, I, I, I've been kind of monitoring the, you know, the Joey Barton situation, as all of us have been for the last week, two weeks... Um, and I think, as, St- as Stephen said quite eloquently, there the, the problem now is that Joey's taken this kind of um, this his license to say what he likes and to have an opinion about about things, which absolutely is his right. But he's taken it so far across the line now that it's just a a wonder whether he'll ever be able to get it ever get it back again. The point is, um, listening to Stephen. And what we all understand is where is that line? And, you know, it is a country which prides itself uh, on free speech and Joey Barton's entitled to his opinion on female pundits, just as he is on, on journalists, just as we all have an opinion on referees. It's it's subjective. I, you know, I don't agree with Joey's opinion on female pundits. I've worked with a lot of female pundits, the likes of, uh, the likes of Rachel Brown Finnis, who is, you know, really articulate. She has uh, strong opinions. She works hard. I see her prep. She works hard. I always think that that's a sign of somebody who cares and she knows her stuff. That's the bottom line. Lucy Ward is an excellent summariser. I like listening to Lucy Ward, as a lot of people I know like listening to Lucy Ward. On Monday Night Club, I've worked with Karen Carney in the past, who, you know, is is, is very clever, articulate. Uh, Izzy Christensen, uh, at this moment in time, just just finished playing. I think she adds value. I, yeah, I, I, I love my cricket as well, and I like, I like listening to uh, Ebony Rainford-Brent. I like uh, I like listening to Alex Hartley. Uh, you know she's she's just come out of the game. You know, sharp, funny, witty, uh, knows her stuff. Um, and look, I think I know Joey from from uh, from his playing career. Joey was a decent footballer. I think that you know that uh, he is an intelligent guy. But I I even think the thing which which struck me most uh, about Stephen's article was uh, was in the last paragraph. And, you know, we talk about where the line is. And I think, you know, Joey, if Joey has read Stephen's article, that he would even accept um, that, you know, he's gone too far. And and the, the last paragraph said, but should he, Joey Barton, have an attack of decency and common sense, he might wish to consider how offensive his serial killer's slur on the ITV pundits may be greeted 
by those who lost their loved ones to the Wests in the most horrific way imaginable. And I don't think, you know, if Joey, Joey has read that, I think that he would realise that he's gone a step too far this time. He might deny that, but, you know, most people looking at that would, you know, we, we all know where most people side with this. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I was covering Manchester City when Joey, Joey played for them. I actually think he was more than a decent football. I think he was a pretty good footballer, actually. Um, I think he was. And, and look, I don't claim to know him. I've sat down with him a couple of times. I, inter- I sat down and interviewed him when he was manager of Fleetwood a few years ago. And I must admit, I came away from that interview thinking that that despite the fact that he's always had this propensity to, to, uh, to let's say, I was going to say lose the plot, but that kind of cheapens it a little bit. Um, just to kind of lose his focus and do and say things that maybe he might regret. I did come away from that interview thinking that he had something to offer and he had something to offer to young footballers in terms of his life experiences and learning from life experiences and the, exp- and, and the, the things that he's picked up along the way. And I did. I, I came away from that interview thinking that, that maybe he was actually going to move into a second phase of his life in which he was going to show just a little bit more restraint, restraint a little bit a little bit more common sense, a little bit more, a, a greater ability to kind of read the room a little bit and realise that some things, no matter what you might think, some things are, are best left unsaid. You can talk about freedom of speech, etc. Some things are best left unsaid. Um, and I thought maybe he'd grasp that. Um, and I was anticipating that he would go on and, and, and have a decent career in management. Um, and what is clear now is he subsequently went to Bristol Rovers where he did OK and then was sacked. Um, I think what is clear now is that his, his career in football football and football management is over. And um, part of me, actually, part of me worries and wonders what will happen next, um, not just to Joey, but to people that he talks about and the people that the people he offends and the people that he upsets. Um, anyway, it's it's a story that we'll follow and it's a space that we'll watch. And um, it's probably about time that you and I got back to talking about some football. Last week, mate, you um, I asked you to choose your top five managers of the season so far. And um, I've got a lot list. of solid. I got a lot of solid backing for my choices. There, there, there weren't too many dis- disagreements with. Well, your choices, top your top five, five um, one to five, were. Uh, um, Nigel Clough. Nigel Clough at five. Uh, sorry, sorry, I, I, no, one to five were Ange Postecoglou, you know, Emery, um, Kieran McKenna at Ipswich, uh, John Massino at Portsmouth, and Nigel Clough at and, Mansfield. Do you know what? I, th- I think Portsmouth and Mansfield lost at the weekend. Well, look, I've, uh, I'm not one to talk for kind of. No, it. well, you're not with the Arsenal, haven't? Since you've since you've backed them to win the World Cup, they uh, haven't. Since I named uh, Mikel Arteta, since I named Mikel, Mikel Arteta as my manager of the year, you know, some of my friends are now calling me Arteta because, <laughs> because of that. That's very seriously. There are there's an so awful this, lot. Of, there are so an awful lot of people. Hang on, there are an awful lot of people on Twitter who are refusing to let me forget the fact that I chose Mikola Teta as my manager of the year, despite the fact that Pep Guardiola won five trophies. Anyway, this week, uh, so listen, there, were, there was some disagreement. Um, um, it, it caused a bit of debate on Twitter, your, your, your choices. Um, Jordan McKeever said Emery should be number one on everyone's list, not even an argument. Um, our own Sammy Mottbell, who we had on the show earlier, said simply Moyes, McKenna, O'Neill, Klopp, Dyche, 
So no big Ange or Emery in Sammy's list. And James Doran on James Doran on Twitter said James Doran, the actor. Doran said Ange Postacoglu is a curious choice considering Spurs are sat in exactly the same spot in the table as they were this time. Ah, what a misery, guts. Have you not have you not seen Ange Ball, James? Dear me. Yes, your turn. So so this week, I want your top five all-time Liverpool strikers. Yeah, I wrote a column last week, uh, which was talking largely about Mo Salah and the way that his game has improved in the last couple of years in terms of he's much more selfish now. He's such a superb passer of the ball now, Salah, in a way that he didn't used to be. The number of chances that he sets up for... For dear old Darwin Nunes, is quite extraordinary. If Nunes ever starts to convert any of them, then Liverpool really will be in business. So anyway, on the back of that, I went on to say that I thought Salah probably is the greatest Liverpool striker that I've ever seen play, which is a, a huge call. A huge call. I'm 54, so even my even my lifetime takes me all the way back to kind of all the way back to uh, John Toshak and uh, Kevin Keegan and uh, Kenny Dalglish and, and and people like that. Um, anyway, my five, and this is from one to five. This is in descending order. Um, so <clears throat> my five, which I have got written down here. Mo Salah, Kenny Dalglish, Ian Rush, Luis Suarez, Kevin Keegan. Wow. I mean, I, I don't think you'll ever get an offer to host an award ceremony doing it in descending order. Um, I, I would say to you, listen, all, all great players. Surprised you've gone for Mo Salah at number one, just because Ian Rush, his his numbers are are so incredible. Uh, great, some great strikers there. Hard, hard to argue, but some Liverpool fans would say Roger Hunt. Maybe his numbers. Didn't, yeah, I didn't. Good. Yeah, I didn't see him play. Didn't see him play. Uh, got to be my Fowler. lifetime. Robbie Fowlett, um, my era, uh, you know, played in, a, in an era of many great England uh, English strikers. Shearer was a phenomenal finisher. Would it be fair to say, though, Robbie Fowler was the most natural finisher? I thought, I'm surprised you haven't got him in there somewhere. I think he had 100, 100 more goals than, than Kevin Keegan, albeit Keegan was a great I, yeah, player. Yeah, I think the, the, one that's, the one that I wrestled over was Keegan Fowler. I know you could, Michael Owen as well, you could talk about. Yeah. Um, but... Um, yeah, Keegan Fowler was the one that I thought about. I just thought that Kevin was, he played for Liverpool at such, in such a transformative era, at that time when they were kind of transitioning through from um, Shankly through to Paisley and starting to win the big trophies, scored a goal in the FA Cup final when they beat Newcastle, won the penalty um, in Rome um, when they beat Borussia Mönchengladbach to win the first European Cup final in 1977 and then went on and left and went on to become European Football of the Year at, at Hamburg, etc. I just thought for what Keegan did at that time and what he represented and the, the, the what Liverpool achieved when he was with them, that was what just gave him the edge over Fowler, who was, as you say, an absolutely extraordinary finisher. And I think had it not been for a couple of injuries, Robbie would have scored even more goals than he did for um, for Liverpool before he moved on to Man City and Leeds and people like good that. Good debate, anyway, that. Uh, anyway, uh, that's that, my list. Know, that's, a, that, that's a good debate. And I think a lot of the sort of older Liverpool fans would, would think Salah ahead of Rush. Hmm. What is your moment of the weekend? 
it's a moment of the week. It doesn't all have to be good. Uh, I I went to watch my daughter, uh, who was uh, she, uh, she she's a dressage rider. She's twelve. Went to watch her at a local show. Had an enjoyable Sunday morning, up to a point. Um, I don't know whether my wife uh, has watched the news or the weather forecast, uh, but there's been a deluge of of rain, there's flooding, um, and, I mean, everywhere is just sodden, it is wet, it is saturated... Anyway, I rock up to watch my daughter, and there are all these... uh, They've they've driven to the venue in a horse lorry uh, to to transport the horse there. I rock up, and there are all these other horse lorries parked on on a hardcore car park. It's at a farm, this this venue is, and there's one lorry stuck in the middle of a field, uh, and guess which (laughs) idiot spent two hours digging it out with a plastic shovel... And planks and two guys kindly help me. <laughs> what is wrong with my wife? What's wrong with your life? <laughs> so that was my shovel. moment of the week. And she, she said to she, she said she said to me last night. She said, "Do you know what? You were so patient. You were so patient. I've you not seen mug. you as patient as that. I wasn't patient. I was." <laughs> You're a mug, I mate. was swearing inside. <laughs> so hang on a minute. First, first of all, I just love the thought of you standing there and you've you know mud all over your Gucci loafers. Uh, but firstly, um, firstly, um, if you kind of a, you know a horse family as you are, and you have the horse, you have the horse box, etc. Do you not carry kit? You not have like a shovel or like something to help you in those situations? A plastic no, spade. No, mo- plastic most people. Spade. No, no, I got that from the farm where where, where we were at. Space. Most people, most people just would have would have just parked where they should have parked, but for some mm. unknown reason, my wife thought a seven and a half ton lorry would just just smoothly go through a uh, a muddy field, a muddy farmer's field, and she was wrong. Did the people who helped? Well, what a surprise! Did the people who helped you recognise you? Yeah, they, well, they did. Uh, yeah, one guy, Mark, who was a Liverpool fan, he had a Liverpool cap uh, from a place called Blowfield. They, without them, without them, I wouldn't have been able to get out. They were they were clued up. We had to get planks and put uh, some like stones under the wheels and forward and back and meaty, you, only, like the Chuckle Brothers. Only one plank, mate. And I'm looking at him. Um, um, I just, yeah, I can't, uh, I can't quite get my head, ra- <coughs> quite get my head around the image of you up to, up to your, up to your knees in kind of horse manure. Um, I don't know, talking shit up to your knees and shit. Um, um, anyway, look, you know, you've come on and told a, a, a fascinating story about yourself, which I, which I quite like. Now, my, um, my moment of the, the weekend, um, two actually. First one's very quick. Um, the bus driver who. Um, uh, took the Newcastle fans to Sunderland on Saturday. Um, it, there was an arrangement whereby all the fans had to meet at St James's Park, go by bus. It was a safety thing, a security thing, um, to kind of keep the supporters in check. And apparently, one of the drivers, when he arrived, um, stopped the bus and got on the microphone and said, "Welcome to Sunderland, where the local time is 1970. Please don't feed the animals." <laughs> Um, and and more seriously my big moment of the weekend big shout out big shock of the weekend um maidstone beating stevenage in fa cup round three 69 places uh between between them um 
that that victory makes um, Maidstone the first National League South side to reach round four of the FA Cup since Haven and Waterlooville in 2008. So that's a great achievement. Their manager, George Elakobi, is 37, appointed a year ago. He's played in every every um, level of the football pyramid, by the way, all the way down to the National League. Played in the Premier League once upon a time. Um, appointed a year ago got relegated last season and George said after this after the victory I've had people coming up to me and abusing me by the dugouts over the last year I took it and it hurt but what I wanted to do was restore pride at this football club and make sure we rebuild well I'll tell you what those people who say that the FA Cup doesn't matter probably need to be in George Ellicobie's shoes because I tell you what it matters to him it matters to his players and it matters to Mason so well done to them they are the they are the stars. They are the stars of the weekend, um, um, and close behind are the two chaps who helped uh, helped you out your predicament in that muddy field yesterday, mate. Right, I think that's a good place to leave it. Thanks for being with us, everybody. Please remember to subscribe to the show. We'll be back again on Thursday for our It's All Kicking Off weekend preview show. And we'll also be back in the studio next Monday for the next episode of this one. I'm Ian Ladyman, the chap with horse muck all over his Wellington boots. It's Chris Sutton, and this has been It's All Kicking Off.